Hi, and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast about people with remarkable stories of resilience, as well as experts in the field, along with myself, who share tips, strategies, and resources to help you power up your mental well-being. You can support our work by leaving a review or donating on our site, which is at qedod.com. You can also purchase our resources, including the imaginatively titled series of books, Resilience Unraveled, Leadership Unraveled, Management Unraveled, and Anxiety Unraveled at qedod.com forward slash extras. Free resources are also available on that page at qedod.com forward slash extras. Enough chat, let's get started. Hey, welcome all back to Resilience Unraveled, and I'm delighted to welcome another guest, and this time in front of me, smiling gently into the breeze, is Craig Fair. Good afternoon, Craig. How are you? I'm great. Honoured to be here, sir. Very good. And delighted to have you. And where in the world are you today? I'm in uh, Georgia in the United States, not the country of Georgia. I've been there, and I have a water polo ball from the uh, national athletes that when I was in Serbia mm-hmm. with my two boys that play water polo. So I've got a, a Georgia ball, but it's the country, Georgia, and I'm in the state in the United Where States. Whereabouts in the state of Georgia are you? Northwest. I'm about 20 minutes from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Oh, right. I was just out there quite recently, actually, touring the area. So uh, yeah, yeah. it's quite an interesting area. So yeah, fascinating. It, yeah. I grew up in California and then moved out here two years ago. So uh, it's beautiful. Just different trees. You know, yes, there's a yeah. ton of pines and oaks in California, and there's different. I think we had the misfortune of being in Atlanta, so it was, it's uh, there are there are better places in Georgia, I suspect. Yes, no yes. comment. I think that's <laughs> enough. We'll talk about Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a delight to meet you, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do? Uh, well, for the last thirty something years, I've been a, an old school general surgeon. Uh, which uh, that means I, I do head to toe back in the day we were trained like general contractors where I do drywall and plumbing and electrical. So I'll, I'll do vascular surgery. I do thoracic surgery. I do oncology, oncologic surgery. Trauma is probably my biggest. Uh, I grew up at, at UC Davis in California and uh, that has the highest amount of blunt trauma in the United States because of all the freeways that join right. and cross. So and then more recently, I, I uh, wrote a book that my grandmother wanted me to write for 15 years to help inspire, motivate, and give hope, especially in today's society with uh, everything being so kind of divided and people were passionate about their their things. So, um, and she passed away August 7th, two years ago. So she got to read the, the rough drafts before it was done, so. Very good. But, All right, well, let's, let's, um, let's, uh... Let's start at the very beginning, shall we? Um, so sure. tell me what it's like being a surgeon. I think most people have obviously watched programs on television, such like they've seen, you know, um, the craggy George, handsome surgeon from George Clooney down to, yes. you know, Gregory, Gregory yes. House and such like. Yep. But the reality is very different, isn't it? I mean, uh, we had a, it is. a back surgeon it, it, on a couple of months ago, and um, he was talking about the relentless nature of the job and the need for resilience in the job you do. Correct. Correct. I mean, th- there are there are moments in your life that you go through that take a piece of you, is what I say. So, um, you know, you think back, and, and a lot of these stories are in the book because they're they're miracles. But one 
one that always comes to mind for me is, you know, rainy day, family, uh, son, daughter, they're going to just a regular grocery store to get f- some food for dinner and lawn, uh, lunch. And it was raining and uh, they lose traction in the rear. The car goes across the lane and it's hit by a gigantic truck that swings the car around the other way. And the other side, the right side of the car, it's a tree. So two kids are in the back and they're both smashed. And one was dead at the scene, which was horrific for one of the sheriffs because it was the age of his daughter. And the other was six and came to my hospital and, you know, just doing everything you can, um, opening a chest and doing open heart massage and then running them to the OR and exploring their belly to make sure that they're not dying from bleeding to death and nothing's there. And now, you know, they've got just a brain injury and that's what killed them. But then you've got to go talk to mom and dad who are dad's got a drop lung from a broken rib. Mom's fine. But, um, telling them what they knew to, and this is probably the only time that I ever went through this part, but I met with the first responders with a chaplain and, uh, for the County and got to tell them what happened because they, they come to the scene it's more real for them because mm. it's 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 a car that's smashed up and and uh you know there's a, a 11 year old girl that's now passed and and uh they drop these patients off and then they disappear and they don't really know what happens and i think it helped give them closure yeah but yeah it's you know and i think that's why trauma especially trauma you 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 it's like um you have to clear the mechanism. Uh, you, you you focus on what you're going to do and you have an algorithm in your head. But once you pull the drape off of that young child, it's all real again. And it just yeah. takes a piece of you. Yeah. And there's, um, you know, when you talk to surgeons such like, and we've had a few on here, strangely enough, they all talk about the, the sort of stress of cutting into a human body. And, you know, there's either people who take it very personally or those who have built up almost like a sociopathic compartmentalization or dissociation in their ability to do that. Um, so I just wondered how you dealt with those sorts of things. Yeah, I, um, I, it must be, you know, compartmentalizing partly, but um, I, I personally can't stand needles. I'm, I, right. I don't like getting stuck, but, yeah. um, which is funny, but I can, I can cut and stick needles in in haiti my calling on a medical mission trip was finding this box of 16 gauge which are huge solid needles since these less than one-year-olds were dying from cholera was nine months after the earthquake and the un team had brought um this cholera into the country and uh, the paramedics and nurses couldn't get ivs in them so being trauma guy, I saw this box of these needles and I said, I could poke that through someone's chin or shin and um, infuse saline into the marrow, which is what we call an interosseous line mm. and, and resuscitate them. So that's what I did. But yeah, I, I don't know. I've never had a problem. You always wonder and you don't know until you get there, whether you can stomach looking at intestines or bleeding or or the stress, you know, I mean, I think my biggest learning curve was probably my internship because not only are you learning, you know, how to do physical exams and take histories, but you're um, operating. So you're learning how to operate. You got to learn the names of the instruments. And then you have all these responsibilities that, you know, you have, you're attached to a pager to take care of. 
yeah. and learn how to take care of. So, yeah, I just, it's never bothered me. And, but it was interesting. My, one of my professors who was a pancreatic uh, international specialist asked me, cause I told him I wanted to become a general surgeon. And he says, so what are you going to do when you've operated on a patient and they die? Mm. And I said, I'll know that I did the best job that I could do on that day. Yeah. That's all you can do. Yeah. yeah. It's that thing about you do your best, and if your best isn't good enough, then that that's it, isn't it, really? Right, right. It's like the sports analogy. And, of course, the thing is with um, medical care, there's the surgery bit, which I suppose is the, um, the remedial thing, but then there's what comes after is the aftercare, the intensive care, the the um, the treatment that goes on in the general wards. There's, there's such a l- l- number of different linkages to getting someone who's badly damaged through to someone who's healed and l- leaves the hospital. Yours is the beginning bit, really, isn't it? More than anything else. Yeah, just to be it, it, in the the same chapter as that six year old. It's called the judge. He was a judge in the county, and he had a ruptured aneurysm. And I took him to the operating room. It was like a three hour surgery, but he was there for three months, and he yeah. didn't make it. And so he was on a ventilator the whole time. He he was aware of what was going on. He could write on a clipboard and communicate, but. Yeah, I mean, the first week I'm probably being called every 15 minutes to um, to manage something. He's yeah. biting the ventilator, so he needs to be better sedated. Or, yeah, the amount of work after the surgery is easy. It's the work afterwards yeah. that's really yeah. time consuming. What What made you go into surgery? What was the What was the so um, motivation? Um, I I grew up. Uh, uh, I was teaching blind students geometry. And I'm like, wow, okay, I, I got to put myself in their shoes. They can't see a circle. They can't. So they feel it. So I would trace it for them, or I'd bring a tennis ball in for a sphere or a pyramid for a pyramid. So so I loved helping people, and I loved working with my hands. And this is high school. And then my junior year, I took an anatomy physiology class, and that was it. I knew I had to go into medicine. I had to be a surgeon. I was cocky, so I wanted to be a cardiovascular surgeon or a neurosurgeon because they seemed like those were the, the most dramatic and intense. Glamour. But but yeah, but then in med school, um, I, I did an acting internship with some cardiothoracic guys that were at the university where I was training in Sacramento. And I mean, those guys are so dedicated, it's crazy, but but they do bypasses and valves unless you go pediatric cardiology where you have a lot of interesting things to do. Um, but then you got to live in a big city. So it's like, it just, it seemed like they were highly technical, but the, 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 the life-saving things. And then I was at a veterans hospital in Martinez, California. And this guy who had a lung cancer, it started to bleed and he was drowning in his own blood. And the internist didn't know how to put a, in a tracheal tube into his trachea to breathe for him or pull, push it down further. So the balloon would put pressure on what was bleeding. And then you can breathe on the other good lung. Uh, and the surgeon, the surgical resident was in an op- operating room. So um, I said to myself, I never want to be in a position I can't do something to save someone. And that was mm-hmm. general surgery back then. So if someone had a big head bonk and a hematoma in their skull, I could drill a hole to a burr hole and drain that and save their life. Or if they've got a drop lung, I can put a needle in it initially and then a tube to reinflate the lung. If they've been shot, I can open, you know, the chest of the pericardium and put a finger in the hole and then get them to the OR to get that closed. And 
So, and then just the breadth of general surgery. So it's like I said, it's breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer. It just was like the family medicine of surgery. So that's what got me interested in general surgery. Fascinating. So um, it, it seems it seems a, a shame to condense um, thirty odd years of uh, general practice into a very short conversation because no doubt there's endless development challenges you know, advances in medicine, differences in the way that yeah. things are handled, yeah. you know, yeah. the rise of technology. I mean, it's an, it's an ever-changing world. It is. Uh, it is. But at the same time, the, the sort of basic principles are the same as uh, 300 years ago, where you're cutting, you're manipulating, you're removing, you're stitching, right. you're inserting. I mean, those sort of fundamental processes are the same, whether you're doing it in a fancy way or with something, you know, with a completely different sort of material property, you're still doing the same sort of processes, yeah. I guess. And it's, it's interesting because certain techniques will recycle about every 20 years. Really? You know? Yeah. We like with like chest stuff, the mesotheliomas that generally are from asbestosis mm. exposure. And, uh, you know, we tried to strip the whole lining of the, the chest wall and what was ever on the lungs and, and then give chemo and radiation if there was some focal area that could be radiated. And then that had no outcome that was worthwhile. So we stopped doing that. And then, and so, but then something come, comes along now. Now it's the monoclonal antibodies. So we've had really no advance in melanoma until probably four or five years ago. And which was a, like a miracle in my life that's not in the book. But one of my friends who was in a Bible study with me and he had a melanoma in the scalp, which is a bad spot, had metastasis in a lot of other places, underwent chemo. And then they were gone. And one night we're sitting there and he goes, he, he called me and he says, I had this dream. It just said LAK. And I'm like, and I also knew that he had a CT scan coming up to see how his, you know, if anything was recurring. And I look it up and it's the first monoclonal antibody. Yeah. And I go, and then I look up more, I go, they've got monoclonals that will attack melanoma and get rid of it. And so I call him back. I go, I got good news and bad news. The bad news is I'm afraid of what your CT scan is going to show you if you've really kind of prophesied through this LAK um, because we do have something to fight metastasis in your lungs and everywhere else. And that's what he had. And then he went on a, the current mon monoclonal antibody and he's disease-free. Brilliant. So yeah. one of the things I find interesting is that it's quite interesting to talk to you because there are a lot of people who come in here and talk about not needing surgery, not needing cancer treatments because of spiritual beliefs or things like that. Where, where do you stand on that? Um, well, I, you know, I go to, I go to science. I, I go to Bay's theorem. So Bay was a French statistician and he has this one uh, algorithm where if you were in prison and you were given a deck of cards and you were to pull an ace out, so the ace of spades, and then you put it back in and you have to, they, they shuffle it and you had to pull the ace of spades and you'd be let free instead of executed. It has a statistical outcome. I forget mm. what it is. Wonderful. But let's say, let's alter the reality. Let's say someone in the card shop knew you were going to pull an ace of spades out of there. So you made two decks or a deck that had all ace of spades hmm. and what's the now let's so what's the odds of that you know happening uh so there is a chance that a miracle could happen 
if you know the odds. So if you're spiritual and you believe in God and you believe that he can heal, um, like Jesus did, um, then that faith gives you a better outcome than if you didn't believe that. Mm. It, it's another, it's, it, it's a chance at hope. And, and it does. Sometimes people do miraculously have a brain tumor that goes away or, but, and I had, you know, I had a recovery room nurse ask me one time, so you're a scientist. And I go, yeah, I am. I mean, I have to, it's, I ha I can't just go off of what I think. I, everything needs to be evidence-based for me. Mm. And um, how can you believe in Jesus and God and Holy Spirit? And I go, why not? I mean, Genesis, even Hawken had a problem with that. So his two books, Brief History and Briefer History, he when he gets to that point where the Big Bang is what everybody believes, so there's a time zero, what existed before? And and then how did it how did light light was separated from darkness? And and so his answer to that was, well, that's a philosophical question that we won't address. So and I just say, look, we just study what God created. I mean, that's all we do. We we science is observational. So sight, sound, smell, we make we will look at x-rays. So we'll come up with something that changes the character of what something may do, the more dense, the more the x-ray gets blocked, so it's white on, yeah. on an x-ray film. Um, gels, you put a protein in there and see how fast it settles, sedimentation rate. So, yeah, we just observe what God created. And, and, and surgically, like you asked the question about an incision, I'm like, I hurt people by cutting them, yeah. but then I sew things together like mucosa to mucosa, skin to skin, fat to fat. Mm. And the body miraculously heals that. If I scratch a car, it doesn't heal itself. So God intervenes in, in, in getting people to heal. My job is not of the spirit. It's more of the flesh. And if the flesh isn't doing what it's supposed to do, then I need to, if there's an infection or say I've removed a part of the intestine and, and there's a leak, I need to recognize that and go back and fix it. Good. Um, okay, so the book, you said you wrote it, uh, you were inspired by, was it your grandmother? What, my grandmother, yeah, yeah. yeah. She she was there for my life. All My mom died when I was a freshman in college. My dad died between my junior and senior year. She was there for my high school graduation all the way through undergrad, med school, and six-year residency. And then I would take her to Sacramento Kings games, basketball, like six to eight games a year. And so we would eat dinner, go to the game. She loved to watch the game. But for 15 years, she's like, you know, you need to write about your life just to let people know what you've been through. I mean, I was an orphan for nine months. I was adopted by, but I know my, my wife found, and I, because my grandfather uh, was the attorney that did the adoption, I had names and birth dates and my mm -hmm. wife found them. And so I know what my genetics are. And then I also have done the, not the 23, but like heritage or whatever. Mm. And so I'm 60% Irish and it's interesting. So I'm like 6% uh, Western Asia, which is like Jerusalem and Israel essentially. And then I'm Baltic and Iberian mm -hmm. and nowhere, <laughs> you know, the, I, I grew up thinking that I was French. And then it turns out when, when found natural family, I'm Belgian right. and, uh, and you know Irish and English, and I'm like, wow. So it's, it's I somehow those people met, 
<laughs> from being Baltic and Iberian and which is Portugal and Spain. So mm. yeah, it's amazing. Very good. And so tell us about the book, what's in it? What, who's it written for? So it's written for anybody really. I mean, you know, kids can read it. Um, I don't think, well, maybe some of the pranks would be also wrote about some of the pranks I pulled in college, but because it was when you're going through like my childhood, but anybody, you know, it's, I wrote it for people to read it. And I think the biggest picture is that it gives me a door that opens that I can go through and speak to large companies, large, I mean, and anybody to help bring hope. The last chapter was about a friend of mine who was a scrub nurse and came down with Parkinson's, but it was a really odd rapidly. Mm. And I was, I was there for, I mean, he was an atheist and and I brought over the truth project, which is like a DVD collection of things, eight things from evolution to uh, a lot of stuff. And he didn't want to, didn't want to hear five minutes into the first episode. He's like, I think this is for someone who believes. And, uh, but I saw him the last five days. I mean, unequivocally walk through the door and, and, and I won't give it away. So if someone reads, if, if you just don't want to read the book, just read the last chapter. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so it's meant to motivate and inspire and bring hope and then hopefully allow me to do that in person. Very good. And um, where can we get hold of it? Uh, it's on Amazon. If you just Google, you know, Google Amazon and then, uh, or my website, craigthayer.net, it has a link. Um, but if you just put Craig Thayer uh, saved, um, that should pull up the book and then you can buy it. And um, the Audible should be coming out in probably the next three weeks or so, I think. Yeah, you were saying you were so, busy recording at the moment. Is that right? Yeah, I did the final eight little clip edits. And it's funny because I can I, the analogy I use is if I had polio and I had a thin leg, I'm fine just every day. But if I had to be had to run, uh, no, I am not disabled, but I'm disadvantaged. Mm. And it turns out eight years ago or so, I found out that my youngest son has dyslexia, but all the symptoms he has are the same ones I have. Yes. I'm a huge yes. test taker because I have to for what I do. Every year, I have to take tests to get continuing medical education credits. And I, I'm, I've always known I was a slow reader. And that's a brief part of a chapter in the book about third grade and standing in front of a prompter where all the other students are reading, you know, hundred some words per minute and I'm fumbling and all over the place. And yeah. So, um, so yeah, Amazon, uh, is one, the, the, the main spot that you can get the book from Fantastic. Again, my website. So Craig's been lovely to talk and, uh, it sounds like there's tons to read and, um, I'm going online now and having a look myself. So, uh, thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm again, honored to be here. Great. And, uh, you take care. I will. Hi, thanks for listening. Hopefully that was a useful and interesting episode. As I said earlier, you can support our work by leaving a review, which does drive enhanced exposure. Or you can donate on our site, which is at qedod.com. You can purchase our series of books all about unraveling resilience, leadership, management and anxiety at qedod.com forward slash extras along with some other free resources available on the site. We've also got a Patreon page and you of course can send us questions, ideas, thoughts, conversations and fresh subjects at info at 
qedod.com. Hopefully there's something there for you. Catch you next time round. Thank you.